Ephesians 6, 10 to 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When we were kids, one of the things we enjoyed doing was riding all over town on our bicycles. And now as an adult, one of the things I enjoy doing is riding all over town on my bicycle. But I have noted that as I get ready to go for a ride, that it takes a lot longer now to get ready. And not just because I'm slower, but because of the gear that I use. When I would go around Broward County on my bicycle as a kid, my gear consisted in a pair of shorts. Sometimes with a t-shirt wrapped around my waist in case I had to go into some building and maybe some flip-flops stuck in under my bike seat in case I needed to go into a store or something like that. That was it. All I had to do was jump on my bike and go. And now, before I jump on my bike and go, I put on a long sleeve, very bright fluorescent shirt. I uh, have biking shorts that are padded. I have sometimes special socks and special shoes with special clips for certain pedals. I, I wear uh, full-fingered gloves. I make sure that I have glasses on. Uh, I have a whistle around my neck in case I need to warn uh, somebody and they don't see me. And most of all, most importantly, I have a helmet on. And this takes a while to get ready. Uh, but most of the, the serious falls I've had and accidents have been actually since I started using that protective gear. <laughs> now, I don't know what to make of that, but I, I do want to say that uh, at least from now on, I should use this gear for whatever reason. Maybe it was that I just fell in the past and I was resilient and bounced back up, and I just don't bounce back up like I used to. So from now on, I need to have the right equipment in order to cycle. This section is a similar argument, but it's something much more serious. And it's saying, from now on, Christians, you need to have the right gear, the right equipment. Whatever you might have had in the past, whatever you might have used in the past, from now on, you need to put on the right equipment before you enter into what is facing you. And that's how it begins. The translation here says, finally, it is more likely from now on, from now on. And this uses different verbs of, of command. And we noted how Ephesians is broken into two sections. There is the, the first section that has no commands in it, none whatsoever. They're all statements about what God has done in Jesus Christ and the victory that he's won. 
And then there's the transition moving into chapter 4 and goes through the rest of 6 where we start hearing these commands. In light of what God has done in Jesus Christ and through His Spirit now, Christians, how do you respond? How do you live? What do you do? And here we find several commands. We have the command, the overall command here is to be strong or to be strengthened. And then in light of that, be strengthened or rather in the the way to be strengthened, we have these commands to put on and to take up the armor of God, to stand using the armor of God and to receive the armor of God. There are different verbs of command that we're going to find here. But it begins with this, finally, or rather from now on, folks, from now on, Christians, be strong, be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his might. This is an idea that actually runs through Scripture. The idea of believers being strengthened, but not in their own strength, but in the strength of the Lord. If you go back, for example, to chapter 30 of 1 Samuel, verse 6, it says, And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And you see this idea that goes through the Psalms and the prophets. Be strong, not in your own strength, but be strong in the strength of the Lord. Now, Paul has already prayed in Ephesians that we would know the the strength of his might. And it's the same expression, although translated a little differently in our version. In in verse 10 of chapter 6, it says, it says, from now on, be strong in the strength of I'm sorry, in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And if you go back to chapter 1, verse 16 of Ephesians, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. And it's the same expression there. So he's already prayed that we would know the strength of his might. And now he's saying, now you know it. I pray that you would know it. Now be strengthened in it. Now it's time to act. It's not just a question of knowing it. Now it is a question of appropriating the strength of his might. And the way to do that is to take advantage of the whole armor of God. And in this this first section, verses 10 to 13, we find two verbs of command. We find the verb put on, and we've already seen that, haven't we? You remember in chapter 4 where he said to to put off lying and put on truth-telling, to put off stealing and to to put on on hard work so that we might be generous? So it's the same image, this this image of being clad, of being being clothed. So the the first verb is put on the whole armor of God. And then you find in verse 13, he says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Now, the purpose of putting on the whole armor of God is to be able to stand, to stand. And we have four times this word or some variation thereof, this word to stand or to withstand. So in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. Verse 13, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Then verse 14, stand therefore. Do you get the idea? What's the purpose of the armor? To do what? To stand or to stand against, to withstand. 
And it says here that the reason we need to do that is because there is an enemy. There is an enemy and he is no small enemy. It says, put on the whole armor of God, verse 11, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We've already we've already seen this word schemes in chapter four, verse 14. And it says there it's the schemes of humans so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. But here we find out that it's not only humans that have schemes, but it is also the enemy. It is the devil. It is the 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 prince of darkness who has schemes and those schemes are against us. And then he clarifies that. In verse 12, he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. If you look at the Old Testament, there's a whole lot of wrestling against flesh and blood. And and, and people are disturbed about that. The warfare in the Old Testament, it is often very, very bloody because it's it's fleshly and bloody warfare. And then the reasons for that, the reasons for that, the the people of God, the, the, the manifestation of the people of God, it was a nation in those days and had to engage in that sort of thing. But now he's saying that's that's no longer. That's not the kind of warfare we're doing anymore. It's not right for the church to take up the sword and spill blood. But we're in a battle that is raging. And it, it, it's a battle at, at close quarters. It's a battle at close quarters. It says we do not wrestle. And, and wrestling is not shooting at uh, others from afar. Wrestling is hand to hand. Wrestling is close quarter combat. It says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And this might come as something of a surprise because we have heard about these creatures throughout Ephesians. But here we realize that these are not necessarily good creatures and some of them are malevolent creatures. Some of them are evil creatures. We have heard about these powers and rulers and dominions and authorities and we maybe are scratching our head and saying, are these good or are these not good? And now we find that it's a mixed bag, that some of these rulers and powers and cosmic authorities are are good and on the Lord's side. But now we find that some rule over this present darkness And it says that they are in the same place. It's called the heavenly places. And this is this is a surprise in Ephesians because we keep hearing about these heavenly places. Let me remind you of what we have heard about the heavenly places. In chapter one, verse three, we learned that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Done deal. All of them are ours. In chapter 1, verse 20, we learned that Christ is seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places. We learned in chapter 3, verse 10, that God's wisdom is shown through the church in the heavenly places. And we read in chapter 2, verse 6, that God has seated us. He has seated us in the heavenly places in Christ. So that sounds like what? It's all done, isn't it? The heavenly places are taken care of. Christ is seated there at God's right hand. We are seated with Christ at God's right hand. Uh, that's uh, that's two six. Actually, Christ is seated there one twenty. We are seated there two six. And all of these these cosmic forces can look at us and see the manifold wisdom of God as they look at the church. And so we might think everything is done in these heavenly places. It is all tied up. It is all won. The victory is secure. And now we realize. 
that it's not after all. That these heavenly places are not completely pacified. That there is a battle that still rages in these heavenly places and that some of these cosmic forces are against us and against God. We learn that the battle still rages and that we are engaged in this battle in close quarters. Now, the final victory is secure. Go back and read chapters 1 to 3. Christ is seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places. God has raised him up to his throne. The battle is secure. The end is not in doubt. But we are in that dangerous mopping up phase of the war. We are in that cleanup phase when we are when we are wrestling at close quarters in these heavenly places with these forces. For this reason, he says, we says in verse in verse 13, for this reason, because we are in, engaged in this battle, for this reason, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. He said, put it on. Now he says, take it up that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Now, what is this evil day? There are different ideas about what this evil day is, but but I think probably the best or one of the better interpretations is that that evil day when hell unleashes all of its remaining fury in a last-ditch effort to overthrow the king of the universe. A futile effort it will be, but a furious effort. And he's saying that day is coming when everything will be thrown against the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And we need to be ready for that day so that in that day we might stand. Now notice, notice, we are not called on here to win some new victory. We are not even called on here to take new territory. The territory has already been taken. All we are supposed to do is stand our ground on the ground that already has been won by the Lord Jesus Christ, who is raised to God's right hand. That's the goal. Just stand. Just stand where you are. And how do we do that? By putting on, by taking up the full armor of God. And now we have six pieces. Six pieces of the armor. And these are typical pieces for the armament of the day and the weapons of the day. But if you look at these pieces, they're the typical pieces in any day. These haven't changed much, have they? These are, these are the body armor and the, the, the weapons of the, of the soldier. And what are they? They're a belt, and we still use belts to hold the, the different weaponry. Uh, there's the breastplate, the, the, the bulletproof shield, as it were, over the chest. There are the shoes, and in the day they were heavy shoes. They were metal-studded shoes that the Roman soldiers wore. There is the shield, which is probably the long shield of the Romans that goes basically from head to knees and, and can cover most of the body. There is the, the helmet, and the helmet, you've probably seen the old movies, which actually have a pretty good depiction of the helmet, the, the metal helmet with some cheek shields and some uh, armor all the way around the head to, to protect the brain. And then, of course, there is the sword, probably not the long sword, but probably the short sword that the Romans used at close quarters. Now, there is a breakdown in these in these six pieces. And there's, there's a subtle difference between the first four and the last two. The first four are pieces, are metaphors, for four virtues that Christians need to develop in our lives. These are things that we need to work on. 
We need to have the, the belt of truth. What is the belt of truth? It is truth. It is truth. So this is something that we need to put on, that we need to develop. And this, this truth, this truthfulness, this speaking the truth and being truthful people is as a belt around our bodies. We need to practice righteousness. That is the breastplate of righteousness. So we, in our, in our comportment as Christians, need to develop righteousness. And that righteousness functions as a, 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 a breastplate for us. We need to be ready to tell other people about Jesus. That's the readiness of the gospel. That's the readiness wherever our feet might take us, that we would be in that place ready to tell people about Jesus. And the fourth one is faith. We need to continually live in faith. And this faith is as a shield. And the idea here is that if we develop these virtues, they will function like armor and they will enable us to stand no matter how evil the days become. And the flip side of that is true as well. The flip side is this. If these virtues are not in our lives and are not increasing in our lives, then we're easy picking. We won't be able to stand in the evil day. We will get bumped off very, very easily. But we can take heart and we can know that these, these virtues, these pieces of armament will work. And the reason we know that is because they've already been tried. They've already been used, and they've been used by God himself. So he has, he has tested these, all the armaments that our, our service men and women use. They've been thoroughly, thoroughly tested to see if they work or not. These, these pieces of armor have been thoroughly tested, folks. They have been tried and they have been found to be effective. We already read from Isaiah chapter 59, but I'll read it again, just 59, 17. He put on, who is he? God himself. He found that there was truth that was lacking. He found that righteousness was lacking. So what did he do? He said, if it's lacking, then I will take it up. I will supply what is lacking. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And if you go back to chapter 11, we find other pieces. In 11, it's talking about the, the root, the stump of Jesse. This is the Messiah. And it says, righteousness in verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And then if you go to chapter 52, you find this familiar verse. How beautiful upon the mountains are the what? The feet, the readiness of the gospel, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation. These have already been tried. So don't worry about whether these will work for you. Put these on, take these up, develop these in your life, and they will hold true. And they will protect you. They will enable you to stand no matter how evil the days become. Since I've come back to the States, I've heard a lot of lamentation among Christians about how, how evil our days are. And, and that, I think, is probably something that is perennial. In any time, we can look around and say how evil the days have become. Uh, but, but we don't need to, to worry because we have pieces that will enable us to stand our ground no matter how evil the days become. And one of these, one of these pieces particular particularly is described its function, and that is faith. 
it says that that faith will work like a shield that can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one in verse 16. Now, uh, the, the Roman shields had a core of wood and then they had other things on them, uh, animal skins and things like that. They're very, very stout devices. But when, when flaming arrows or darts were, were fired at these wooden shields, guess what could happen to those wooden shields? They themselves could catch on fire and the, the hope was that the soldiers would then throw the wooden shields aside so that they would be exposed. But, but lo and behold, the, this shield is not only able to deflect, to stop the firing da- fiery dart, but it's able to extinguish it. This is something like an asbestos shield or something like that. It, it snuffs out the flaming dart. Now, Paul doesn't explain the details of this imagery here. Like, what are the flaming darts of the evil one? He doesn't really explain what that is. But, but I think every Christian has had this experience and has it very regularly. And that is, you're walking through your day. You've had a good time in the Word and in prayer in the morning. You think, this is going to be a good day of walking with the Lord. And all of a sudden, you're walking along and smack upside the head. Or boom! piercing to the heart there is this there is this overwhelming sudden compulsion or temptation or desire and all of a sudden it's there and you say from where did that come and that's the moment that that needs to be snuffed out immediately it needs to be extinguished and by and by we have we have that which can extinguish it it's faith It's turning to God once again in faith to snuff that out immediately. Now, as I said, there's a a shift, and it may be a subtle shift in verse 17, where it says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. It looks like there's a new sentence here that uses a different verb of command. It's translated the same here, and that's not an incorrect translation, because it's a word that can mean either take or receive. So it's a word that can cover those both, but if you think of those two translations, they're a little different, aren't they? Take, there is some, some active, uh, active participation on our part. We're reaching out and grabbing. Receive, we're just kind of opening our hands and saying, okay, I'll receive these. And when we see these last two pieces, we realize that now we are not anymore in the idea of virtues to be developed but gifts to be received. Two gifts that are complete, and we receive them. And what are those two gifts? Salvation and the Word of God. So it looks like now we are, with the last two pieces that a soldier would put on, by the way, these are the last two pieces. You don't want to have that helmet on unless you need it. Uh, And the sword, that's the last thing you take up because now you have the belt to, to hold the sword, the holster, and so on. So these are the last two pieces. But these are done deals. These are gifts that are already accomplished. The emphasis of Ephesians is on salvation as a completed event, a completed gift. You remember Ephesians 2, 8, 9. By grace you what? Have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one can boast. What do we do with salvation? How do we get it? We we receive it. It is given to us. It is complete. And now it says, 
that, that we are to receive the helmet of salvation. So Paul's already told us that we have received salvation by grace through faith if we're believers in Jesus. And now he says, receive salvation. And this is actually the more common emphasis in Paul. Often in Paul, the idea of salvation is future-oriented. In Ephesians, up to this point, it's been past. You have been saved by grace through faith. And now he adds to that, you will be saved by grace through faith. And you are saved by grace through faith. If anyone is saved, how will it be? By grace through faith. So it's not just in the past. Oh, yeah, we trusted in Jesus back then when we came to God. No, it's we trusted in Jesus back then. We trust in Jesus now and in the future. And in that great day, we will trust in Jesus. And we will. We have been saved. We are saved. We will be saved by grace through faith. Take up that salvation. No, don't take it up. Receive it. It's a done deal. But continue to trust in it forever and ever. That's the first one. And then the other one, it's, it's also very obvious. The Word of God. Is that a virtue, virtue for you to develop? Are you to work on the word of God? Are you to make it make it happen? No, it's a done deal. And in our day, even more so than in Paul's, we have the completed canon. We have not only Old Testament, we have New Testament. It is given to us. We don't add to it. We don't take away from it. It is for us to receive. And it's called here what? It's called the sword of the spirit. Why? Because the spirit's the one who gives it to us. The spirit is the one who inspired it. And some people have noted that that this is the only only uh, weapon that is both defensive and offensive. That's not exactly true, because when you get into close quarters, uh, wrestling with the enemy in hand-to-hand combat, what pieces become offensive weapons? All of them. If you can hit them with your shoe, if you can hit them with your helmet, if you can hit them with your belt, whatever. You, you, you improvise. You do whatever you can. But But by design... Anyway, the sword is the one that is both defensive and is also offensive to go on the offensive against the enemy. We see how that works, don't we? With Jesus in the desert. He was driven out into the desert after he was baptized to be tempted by the devil. And the devil, he schemed. He quoted scripture to Jesus. He, he knew his Bible, this devil. And he quoted scripture to Jesus. Three times he, he set temptations before Jesus. And how did Jesus respond each time? It is written. It is written. It is written. And the devil had to flee and look for another opportunity because he was driven away by what? By the word of God. It is written. You see, that's why we, we emphasize this so much. That's why, why Christians are, are, are people of, of this book. That's why we study it. That's why we read it. That's why we pay attention to it. That's why we hide it up on our hearts and memorize it. So that in that evil day, we will be ready to say, No, it is written. It is written. It is written. Be gone. Because it is written. That's the sword of the spirit. Now, the armor works and the armor is sufficient. But it doesn't mean that no one will get hurt. This is a battle. 
And we need to think about Jesus himself. The Messiah. He, above all, put on and took up and received this armor. But even so, he received a mortal blow from his enemies. And so it doesn't mean that no one will get hurt. Jesus himself died in this great cosmic battle. But then what do we read? But God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand above all rule and power and authority and dominion and whatever is named in this earth. He reigns over it. Where? In those heavenly places. He's in control. But it doesn't mean that there won't be suffering along the way. It doesn't mean that the battle won't be fierce. It doesn't mean that no one will get hurt. But what it does mean is that the victory is secure. The armament is sufficient for the battle in which we are engaged. Some of you may be familiar with Pilgrim's Progress, that great allegory of John Bunyan, One of our favorite children's books was a children's uh, version of this that's illustrated with some beautiful illustrations. And there's a chapter, chapter four, called The Fight with Apollyon, Apollyon Destroyer. And this is what we read about Christian who's on this journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. He stopped at the beautiful house. And there he got to rest and get prepared for the next part of the journey. And we read, Then I saw in my dream that on the morrow Christian desired to go forward on his journey, but the ladies of the house, whose names were Charity, Piety, Prudence, and Discretion, told him that he should not depart thence till they had shown him the rarities of the place. They would not let him go till they had led him to the armory. Then they fitted Christian out with the armor, which their Lord provided for the use of travelers, that they should be ready for any assaults along the way, that they should stand their ground when things were at their worst, that having done all to stand, first the helmet and breastplate that could save his life, then the faithful shield to fend off the fiery darts of the wicked, then the trusty sword that could cut through anything. Finally, his feet were shod with shoes that would not wear out, for he was setting out, they said, not against human foes, but against the wiles of the devil. Thus fully armed did Christian hurry to the gate. Soon he found himself in a solitary place called the Valley of Humiliation. Here, after he had stopped to partake of the bread and wine and raisins which the damsels had given him, he was feeling well content. Perhaps, he said to himself, the worst is over. All of a sudden, a darkness fell across the sun. What could it be? He roused himself, and there he saw stalking towards him the towering shape of a foul fiend, He was at least nine feet high, and the nearer he came, the more hideous he grew. He had scales like a fish, and they are his pride. He had wings like a dragon and feet like a bear, and out of his belly came fire and smoke. And as it happens in a dream, Christian recognized the fiend at once and knew his name. It was Apollyon. Terrified, he cast in his mind whether to go back or stand firm. Then considering that he had no armor on his back and to turn his back on the monster would give him the advantage, he resolved to stay firm. The fiend had now drawn very close. He looked upon Christian with a disdainful countenance and then thus began to question him. Where have you come from? 
I've come from the city of destruction, which is the place of all evil. By this I perceive that you are one of my subjects, said Apollyon, for I am the prince of that city, and all that country is mine. Why then are you running away from your prince? I was indeed born in your dominions, admitted Christian, but I have given my allegiance to another who is the king of princes. How can I now, with fairness, go back on this? Yet you did the same to me, and I am willing to pass it over, replied Apollyon. What I promised you was in my infancy, said Christian. Besides, to tell you the truth, I like his service better than yours. You have already been unfaithful to him, exclaimed Apollyon. You fell into the slough of despond, you slept and let fall your parchment, and in all you say and do, you are inwardly desirous of vain glory. Too well I know it. Yet the king whom I serve is merciful and ready to forgive. I am the enemy of this king, said Apollyon. I hate his person, his laws, and his people. Moreover, there is no prince who will lightly lose his subjects. Neither will I lose you. Give him the slip and work for me, and your wages shall be doubled. I know your wages, you destroying Apollyon. They are not such as a man can live on. They are the wages of death. And then Apollyon broke into a grievous rage. What you say is true. Therefore, prepare yourself to die. Apollyon... Beware of what you're doing, cried Christian, for I am on the king's highway, the way of holiness. Therefore, take heed of yourself. But Apollyon straddled over the whole breadth of the way and barred his path. I am void of fear in this matter. I swear by my infernal den that you shall go no further. Here I will spill your soul. Without more ado, the fiend threw a flaming dart at Christian's breast. But Christian had his shield in his hand and so prevented him. Then Christian drew his sword, for he saw it was time to bestir himself, and the fiend made fast at him, and threw his darts as thick as hail. And though he did all he could to avoid them, and in spite of the new armor that he wore, Christian was wounded in the head, the hand, the foot, and forced to yield ground. The combat had lasted half the day. You couldn't imagine, if you had not been there, what yelling and roaring Apollyon made, and what sighs and groans burst from the pilgrim's heart. For you must know that by reason of his wounds, Christian was growing weaker by the hour. Then Apollyon saw his chance and came in close and wrestling with Christian gave him such a dreadful fall that his sword flew from his hand. Now I am sure of you, the fiend cried. And kneeling on him as he lay helplessly upon his back, he pressed him near to death. But as God would have it, while Apollyon was preparing his final blow, thereby to make an end of this good man, Christian nimbly stretched out his hand for his sword and caught it, saying, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. With that, he ran Apollyon through. And with a terrible roar, as one that had received a mortal wound, the fiend drew back. Then for the first time, Christian smiled. For looking up, he saw Apollyon spread his dragon's wings and fly away, dripping blood over the fields as he went. So the battle was over, and Christian offered thanks for his deliverance. But he too was bleeding copiously. And if he was to bleed to death, his victory would have been in vain. Then, in his mercy, God directed him towards a certain tree, the tree of life, the leaves of which he now applied to all his wounds. They staunched the flow of blood, and he was healed immediately. He also sat down in that place to eat and drink. And so refreshed, Christian went forward to the valley's end. In the late 1700s, the brother of John Wesley, Charles Wesley, the writer of many, many hymns, wrote a hymn called Soldiers of Christ Arise. And it says this, Soldiers of Christ Arise and put your armor on. 
Be strong in the strength which God supplies through his eternal son. Strong in the Lord of hosts and in his mighty power, who in the, tr- in the strength of Jesus' trusts is more than conqueror. Stand then in his great might, with all his strength endued, but take to arm you for the fight, the panoply of God. Leave no unguarded place, no weakness of the soul. Take every virtue, every grace, and fortify the whole. To keep your armor bright, attend with constant care, still walking in your captain's sight, and watching unto prayer. From strength to strength go on. Wrestle and fight and pray. Tread all the, the, the powers of darkness down. And win the well-fought day. Let's pray. Oh God. We often treat life as if it were about comfort and pleasure and peace. But we know when we peel back the curtain and look with faith that we are in a a battle. In a war that's been won, but in a battle that still rages. And I pray, O God, that you would enable us who name the name of Jesus not to be a wall or derelict in our duty, but to be strong in the strength that you supply, to take up put on to receive your armor and so stand our ground no matter how evil the day becomes to stand and having done all to stand